Well, this weekend marks the uh, start of the holiday season in a lot of ways. Uh, did anybody go out Black Friday shopping? Was there any Black Friday shoppers? Did anybody go out? I was at Fred Meyer early in the morning. Got a $10 gift card. <laughs> Come on now. I had to stand there for 40 minutes in <laughs> during the 4 o'clock hour. <laughs> but $10. My brother got a $5 one, so yeah, I didn't get a donut. No, no donut. We also put up our Christmas decorations. Anybody put up their Christmas decorations yet? All right, there's a, a bunch of folks did that. We, in our household, especially households with preschoolers and toddlers, we call it the Great Tree of Temptation. <laughs> so, and great care is put putting glass ornaments way up high. <laughs> but it is the, the start of the holiday season. And this year we find ourselves in our own culture adding yet another letter and word to our vocabulary. Uh, we find the Greek letter... No, maybe you, if you know Greek, you know this letter Omicron, but you see that with yet another variant of the COVID uh, pandemic is upon us, and we of course wonder, when will this all end? When will it end? Of course, the lead up to the season has also introduced us to names and stories outside our community. It's introduced us to uh, national conversations, uh, shared conversations. We've heard folks uh, like this, Brian Laundrie. You asked me a year ago, I wouldn't be able to name a guy named Brian Laundrie. Um, but all over the news, the national manhunt, uh, he was the subject of that. It included the likes of Dog the Bounty Hunter, <laughs> right, looking, looking for this person. And of course, uh, this person was the center of a renewed conversation about domestic violence and, and the like, abuse. Kyle Rittenhouse. Asked me previously if I'd ever, ever heard of Kyle Rittenhouse. No, I don't know anybody. Na- I don't even know anybody named Rittenhouse. Um, but Kyle Rittenhouse, all over the media, his trial and the verdict was covered and opined by counts, countless media outlets. Uh, all kinds of conversations, and of course, the conversation centered around gun ownership and when is it appropriate to use lethal force. And of course, this past week, three Georgia men, three Georgia men who were convicted in the killing of Ahmad Arbery, a man we might add, and I think it's important for us when we tell his story, to say that he was unarmed, and as you would expect from someone who's out jogging. But three men who killed uh, this gentleman, and once more we ask the questions about racism and prejudice and profiling, and we wonder, why do these continue in our own day? Why do they continue? When will it end? When will it end? There's, of course, a stirring in our nation at this time, the season. We're unsettled by the lives that we inhabit, and we're wondering if things will ever be set to right. And, of course, in all of this, all these stories, there is a justice component that exists here, that long before criminal justice charges are ever levied against anybody in any of these situations, we might have hoped that righteousness would have prevailed, that people would not have had to die. Things feel like they're out of sorts. It leaves us wandering about in search of a better home. In the 6th century B.C., things were out of sorts in the Near East. At that time, the armies of Babylon were advancing toward the Jewish nation. And as they advanced there, any idea of a promising future went out the window. What loomed on the horizon was total destruction and certain death. And we see that in our chapter from which our text is pulled. You can look at verses 4 and 5 and see that. The adversary here is an overwhelming force. You're not going to win this battle. This one that's coming, you're not going to win. 
There's an empire standing outside your city, and they're ready to destroy you, and they want to destroy you. And so in the midst of that, they're anticipating that the streets will soon be filled with corpses. Like I said, it's a dark, dark time at this moment. They are out of sorts. Of course, we get a small glimpse of what that looked like in the aftermath. Uh, in the book of Lamentations, particularly in chapter 2, uh, we hear this report. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out on the ground because of the destruction of my people. Because infants and babes faint in the streets of the city. They cry to their mothers, where is bread and wine? As they faint like the wounded in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. That's the visible future. The youngest in a population, babies, who will be lost to starvation, one of the innumerable casualties of war. And surely this here reminds us that the time in which Jeremiah lived is not the day we read about in verse 14. It's not those days that are surely coming. This is a dark period in history. This is a dark place in which they find themselves. And Jeremiah and his contemporaries are a long way from the salvation and safety that our text tells us is coming in verse 16. And not only that, this prophet who is speaking at this point, who's writing here in this text, knows exactly what a dark night can look like in the life of an individual. Because we see in verse 1 that he is still confined in the court of the guard at the time that this prophecy comes. He's imprisoned in a city that is doomed. That's a heavy way to start the Advent season in a sermon, isn't it? But that's where we're at with this text. This is not a Christmas card text when we read it within its context. It's a hopeful, hopeful imagination of the prophet here, looking forward to a brighter day. And so I put here in my notes here, I write, but even so, even with all that as the backdrop, even that with all that lays before him and all that lays before his people, Jeremiah once more imagines something more. Imagines future days when God makes good on an earlier promise. That's what verse 14 is talking about. It's referencing back, it's harkening back to an earlier promise in Jeremiah's prophecy. You can go back to Jeremiah 23, 5 through 6, and you can see repetition of the text that we have here with a few variations. It's looking toward days that are marked by the raising up of a righteous leader, verse 15. And it's looking to a time when the nation will be rescued and is living in safety, not fretting coming destruction, as we see verse 16. And of course, these categories are not there by accident. They're not just things he's pulling out of the air saying, oh, it'd be nice to talk about this today. It'd be nice to cover this territory, go on this landscape. And we see that in a couple reasons. One is this, and this is the obvious, Captain Obvious here, the city is in trouble. The city is in trouble. And the ruin of the city is only part of the story. Not only the city will be destroyed, not only will it be put under siege, not only will a warring army come in and destroy the people and the places, but this people will go into exile. They'll be removed from promised land. And it's hard for us to wrap our mind around that idea of being taken from promised land. This idea that is sacred to them. That it represents the inheritance that they have from God. That God, by giving them the land, has given them a future. And they're going to be ripped from that land and that future. Everything that connects them to their identity of who God is and what God has called them to be as a people is taken out literally from under their feet. 
people here are going to be witness to the destruction of sacred symbols that represent God's presence. There's going to be a destruction of their temple. They're already seeing parts of the temple taken away, taken into the royal treasury of Babylon. And eventually they'll see the whole temple destroyed. And what they'll see in that, again, if the land is taken out beneath their feet, before their very eyes, they watch the very pieces that represented God's presence lying in ruins before them. Which is another way of saying that God is no longer present. That God has left the building, has vacated them. And now they'll find themselves in exile surrounded by foreign people. People that speak a different culture. People that speak a different language. People have a different expectation for what the future holds. And that will be their surroundings going forward. That is what's coming. And when you get displaced like that, homesick doesn't begin to describe where your heart and mind go. After my sophomore year of college, I worked for a camp as a counselor. And I, on occasion, I was asked to work with uh, young people to console them who were feeling homesick. I had this line I would tell the kids. It's kind of dumb now when I think about it looking back. I remember one kid who was in the fetal position, just crawled up. He was homesick. And I said, I just whispered to him. I didn't know what to do. We, so we tried to console him and stuff. Nothing would happen. And so I just said, there's two kinds of people in this world. Those who are homesick and those who are sick of home. And then he got up and started walking around. I don't know what happened. It was a miracle. <laughs> I guess he was sick of home now. <laughs> or maybe he just wanted me to stop talking to him. He was sick of me. But what do you say to an entire displaced people group that are feeling the pains of desiring home? What do you say to them? Well, future salvation and enduring safety makes for a particularly powerful balm in that moment. It's the balm of hope. The second thing we see here in Jeremiah's words is the raising of a righteous branch. Raising of a righteous branch. And that seems peculiar to me. When I read that, particularly with the situation that they're facing, I would imagine that this occasion would call for a leader who would have military prowess so we can strike back. We're going to beat those guys. You know, rally the troops. One more for the Gipper. You know, let's do this. Or maybe someone who had the ability with resource acquisition and distribution. Someone who could manage things because they're going to come under siege and we've got we to gotta delegate and distribute food. And make sure people receive the provisions and we don't run out. Or maybe even someone who could negotiate and build a coalition with neighboring uh, countries and nations with these different rulers. So they can come and join the fight of repelling this foreign invader. That's the type of leader that I would want. That's the type of leader I would call for and be expecting. And I'm sure many people in that day were going, we want that person. That's who we want to solve the problem of today. To solve the issue that we have here in this hour. But instead, we get this. One who's executing justice and righteousness in the land. What? That seems a bit soft. That seems like that's a bit out of place. Don't you know people are going to die? Why would we want to have this type of wise leader step in to be this one who executes justice and righteousness? Well, if you haven't read Jeremiah 23 recently, you want to take a look at that chapter. It names that leadership is a great deal of the problem that the nation is facing at this point. And so this ideal leader is exactly the type of person that this nation needs at this point and going forward. 
Know what it says in, or in Jeremiah 23.1. How terrible it will be for the leaders of Judah who are scattering and destroying my people, says the Lord. What we have translated here as leader could very easily be the word shepherd. And as you hear that language there of, of scattering and destroying, you can kind of hear sheep language in there because the underlying Hebrew word there holds this idea of a shepherd. And this work of scattering and destroying, if you were a shepherd and that was how you were defined as a shepherd, you wouldn't be a shepherd for very much longer. And that's what we see with the leaders of this nation at this time. Instead, leaders were to be ones who executed righteousness and justice. Those are Old Testament expectations for a king. We read that in 1 Kings 10 and Psalm 72, that these are the expectations the people had for their rulers and their leaders, for their shepherds, that they would live this way, that they would rule this way. And of course, a coming good shepherd. Let me pause there for a second. If you immediately go to John's Gospel, chapter 10 right now, when you hear those words, it's for good reason. Because the imagery in the ancient world of not good shepherds was so prevalent in the line of David by this point in history. This would be a welcome relief from the cast of characters who had come before this good shepherd. Of course, returning to our own day, we're certainly not in a situation akin to what the Jewish nation was witnessing in that 6th century B.C., that's not where we find ourselves, right? We don't see corruption in the ranks of our leadership. We've gotten past that one, right? We don't see the poor and vulnerable continuing to be mistreated. Do we? I'm glad we got over that one too. And of course, nations don't project their strength through military might these days. No one's launched a hypersonic missile recently to intimidate and to establish their dominance like they would have done back in the 6th century B.C. God isn't to be sought either in our day, right? I think when we look at it closely, we begin to see places, sure the technology has changed, sure the way that it manifests itself has changed. There's a lot of very similar actions and activities that people have placed themselves in even in our own day as they did in the ancient world. People live in fear. People avoid fear at all costs, or people pretend not to be afraid. We bolster ourselves, raise our chests. And of course, we do all this amidst the existential terror of our own day. And people have been doing that as long as there have been people. It's a people thing. Welcome to the family. Jeremiah here offers us a good word. We look at our text here, and actually in the translation that we use, the NRSV doesn't capture this idea of good word, but it's right there in the Hebrew text. If you look at a translation like the NIV, you'll actually see the promise is translated good promise because it's drawn in the Hebrew word there for good. And of course, that good word that we see in verse 14, it's in that background language, and it certainly would have been have received by this audience as being a good word for the future, something that's to come. But when will that come? When will that good future come for them? My daughter uh, was helping me unpack and set up the Christmas decorations yesterday. And as we were unpacking stuff, we hung up, a, we had this advent calendar that my mom made, which is kind of these felt candles that you stick in little pockets and whatnot. And my daughter was asking me if she could put the candles in the pockets. And I said, well, not, not yet. We're going to do that tomorrow uh, when, when advent starts. And she, of course, asked me, is it tomorrow? 
Uh, no, <laughs> it's not tomorrow. Waiting isn't easy. It's not easy. In fact, there's a whole book, uh, if you're familiar with the Gerald and Piggy kids book, dedicated to the topic, that waiting isn't easy. We know waiting isn't easy for all generations, young or old. It's not an easy thing for us in this life. In this age of self-checkout lines and mobile ordering, uh, when we can binge watch entire series of shows, right, we know quite well how difficult waiting can be, waiting for anything, quite, quite frankly. When your city is about to be sacked and it's going to be destroyed by an invading army and you and your countrymen, countrymen who survived the assault, if you survived the assault, will be carried away into exile in chains, you might also know a thing or two about waiting, right? When you're waiting that doom that's, that's coming. And that waiting becomes all the more the struggle when the imagined future holds a particular kind of promise that lives in sharp contrast to the experience of the day. The scripture, of course, paints that picture for us, shows us that there is another day, a day that's been inaugurated and a day that will fully come at some point. Of course, the prophet here finds himself, along with his people, waiting. He's waiting with them. But before we, we jump to uh, any kinds of conclusions here, where we simply say, oh, you know what, uh, just wait it out a couple more years. Jesus is coming, right? A couple more years. That's 600 years before that guy's lifetime, that that's going to happen. That's a lot of waiting. Of course, when it comes to waiting, there's a wrong way to do it, and there's a right way to do it. Apostle Paul will write to an audience in Thessalonica, these Thessalonian Christians. He'll talk to them about their waiting for the second advent. He actually shows them and says, you know, there's a, there's a way to wait, and there's a way to waste. You can either be waiting or you can be wasting. He encourages them not to waste their time. But what about Jeremiah? What does waiting look like for him? Kind of curiously, if you go one chapter before our present chapter in Jeremiah 32, it tells us he does this. Leslie Newman would be proud by this next statement. He buys land. <laughs> That's what he does. He buys land. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my entire life. Would you buy a piece of property if you knew you were about to be invaded by an army that's going to destroy your nation? Might as well throw that money down the garbage disposal. Because you're not going to own that land for more than five minutes. They're going to come in and take it right away from you. And you'll no longer own it. But that's what Jeremiah does. It says in Jeremiah 32, he buys land. And that seems so strange, given what's about to happen, that he buys this land. But look what he does. He enacts with that purchase of land a longer view. This simple gesture draws viewers to something greater than their immediate situation. To see the promise and the promise giver anew. To renew their hope and to encourage his people to live rightly. He lives differently even though the circumstances around him dictated that he should live one way. And that's why the people are clamoring to. We need to fight. We need to take back what's ours. We need to destroy the enemy. We need to do this, that, and the other thing. And Jeremiah says, we need to be faithful to who God has called us to be. We need to live in that, li that life of prosperity that God has given to us. And to recognize that this land is the land that God has given to us. And may it, may it be taken away from us. One day God will restore it and renew us. And he lives that way. He's led by the one who rightly bears the name that we see at the end of our text. 
And that's a far cry from the king Zedekiah, who was the last king before they go into exile, whose name means something similar, but didn't live into that name. The Lord is my righteousness. The Lord is our righteousness. So what's the, how do we conclude this? How do we wrap this up? Well, there's a Sunday school answer. The answer is Jesus. Right? Welcome to Advent. Wrap it up. We'll start singing Christmas carols right now. Because the answer is Jesus. Jesus is a descendant of David. Branch of David. Got that one. One who lived righteously. Yep. Checks that box as well. And is identified as king by the empire of his day. Remember Pilate asked him the question. Says he's king. He says, it's, if that's what you're saying. Of course, that's all important. And it's all essential. It's important and it's essential to the faith. But yet life doesn't feel easy. Somehow life still, even in our day, doesn't feel easy. Doesn't feel like those answers cut it. That they solve the dilemmas that we face today. And that's not by accident. Because life isn't easy. Jesus acknowledges much in his own day. If you read Luke chapter 21, beginning in verse 25 and following, you'll see that life wasn't going to get easy for his disciples. And it wasn't going to get easy for the people of his own uh, city and nation. In modern times, we find ourselves somewhere between what I call Mayer and Bono. We find ourselves between Mayer and Bono. We're waiting on the world to change while we still haven't found what we're looking for. Right? That's where we find ourselves. We find ourselves living in that tension. And so I ache for a place I've only imagined. Longing for a home that I've yet to live in. But that day is coming. We have to hear the prophet on that. That day is coming. And on that day, the inhabitants of the city will be known by a new name. The same name that the coming king in Jeremiah 23 bears. The Lord is our righteousness. But in our text, it says the city bears that name. If you go back to 23, the king bears the name. You go to 33, and you see that the city bears that name. That same name will be worn by God's people, a rescue people, transformed by a faithful king. But until that day, people get ready. And here's how you get ready. You can draw on the writings of an early Christian follower named Paul. We're familiar with Paul. And he closes with this. He's been praying for the people of Thessalonica, a people that have been waiting for Jesus to return. Some of them stopped working, said, I'm just going to take a vacation and just wait. That sounds nice, doesn't it? Just hang out, see what happens. He's been praying for them. He's been praying for them in their faith and their walk. And then he says this in verse 12 of chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians. He says, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, just as we abound in love for you. And may he so strengthen your hearts in holiness that you may be blameless before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. That's our prayer. That we might live into the name that is held by the one who is our coming king, the king who has come and who will come again. And that we might carry that name because we are known as a people who can declare with great faith and with great trust that the Lord is our righteousness. May be so.